I think people would be surprised about who's willing to help. I mean, that's something I've learned is that in my career, and I've but basically for people who know me, they know that I reach out and ask for help almost all the time. And I've, but I've never been knocked back, no matter what I've asked for, who, yep. who I've reached out to. I mean, that's probably really surprising. I think if you're starting up a practice, you think it's all about being competitive and having to do it all on your own, but yeah. sometimes you don't. Welcome back for the final episode with Jonathan Cowell, Principal Rothy Lohman and host Ben Lawney, Senior Associate, PTID. Passionate about design and specialising in technologies that enable complex geometries and 3D modelling, Jonathan has been with the practice for over five years, combining this with his long-time studio leader role at RMIT. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Over to you, Ben and Jonathan. I guess one of the things that we often hear from business leaders is the challenge of gender and diversity in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you've got an active approach towards managing? We do. We talk about this all the time. So I think uh, numbers are at Rothy Lohman at the moment, but it's pretty close to 50-50. We do see it as an issue and we're we're actively looking at ways of growing our leadership group to make it more diverse. Mm -hmm. So there's and there's lots of obviously obvious benefits for that. From a practice perspective, again, the best work that we do is comes from the fact that we we're able to analyse problems from multiple viewpoints. Yep. You know, so we it's a pluralistic way of examining something to try and find its objective issues and and then strategise based on that. So all aspects of diversity are really really important. Specifically, what we're what we're working on uh, are better, better ways of um, setting up opportunities for women who want careers at Rothy Lohman. You know, if they want to have children, yep. you know, we set up situations for them to come back to work whenever they want to, but also you know as early as they want to, and we we optimise the workflow accordingly. So we've got a lot of a, a group of senior uh, women who are working back part time yep. in the studio, and again through the the kind of I guess the the practice model we're evolving, we're able to find really meaningful and valuable opportunities for them to still continue to grow their careers at a part-time basis while they're going through those mm. periods so that they can come back fully charged when, they're, when they want to come back full-time and so on and they don't miss, you know, they don't have that time lag of missing uh, like important parts of their careers. And so we're actively encouraging, encouraging that. And we see a lot of value and we're working towards, yeah, making it easier, I think. Um, now on to some questions that we regularly ask our guests. Okay. Um, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known starting out? That's a very good question. Probably what I wish I knew back then was that any opportunity be- can become fulfilling. Mm. And basically um, write everyone's name down that you meet <laughs> <laughs> because the network's everything. Yeah. What advice would you give a fledgling practice starting out today? I would find find uh, partners within other practices. I think that there's a really good, strong culture of support that's embedded in, uh, specifically in Melbourne, which I'm really familiar with. 
But if I was a small practice, I would, um, you know, look to directly engage with a larger practice to sort of set up opportunities for support. Because one of the the hardest things with small practices, I guess, is as as they grow and they go through all those changes and the ups and downs, um, it can can throw a small practice apart really quickly. But if they have someone or another business that they can lean on or share resources with Mm. sometimes... Mm in a partnership sense, I think that can be really valuable. And I think a lot of the major practices would, including ours, would actually be open to supporting smaller practices. Within the practice? Yeah. A hybrid practice? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you can see it already in, you see it in, in partnerships, but um, yeah. But I think in terms of mentoring and, and other IP, I think we, as an industry, we do care about each other. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a hard-paced. Yeah. It is. Uh, environment. I think people would be surprised about who's willing to help. I mean, that's something I've learned is that in my career, and I've, but basically for people who know me, they know that I reach out and ask for help almost all the time. <laughs> and I, but I've never been knocked back, no matter what I've asked for, who, yep. who I've reached out to. I mean, that's probably really surprising. I think if you're starting up a practice, you think it's all about being competitive and having to do it all on your own, but yes. sometimes you don't. And that's, that's very good advice. Um, what do you consider to have been your greatest challenge so far? And what were the big learnings from that? The greatest challenge was to to see blue water in contemporary architectural practice. Like most architects, you have an idea about what design is, about what architectural practice is, and it can also be a blocker. Do you know what I mean? Like it puts enormous pressure on you as an individual to see that, you know, to measure success or to measure um, how you're engaging with practice and that it can only form around, around certain idealised yeah. conditions. For me, the greatest challenge was to pop that myth, I suppose, because once it was popped, not a very interesting way of describing <laughs> that metaphor, but once I got past it, I guess, it, it, what opened up was that, you know, anything is exciting and so many other things are important and that there is no limit to what your opportunities are, are which is one of the reasons why, again, I joined Rothy Lohman. I, I wanted to be involved in multi-res. I didn't, mm. want to, I didn't want to avoid that in my career. I saw the potential of it was actually really, really rich and exciting and it all comes down to how you see your career and your and how practice how you imagine practice and so on and imagine engagement with the city that was the greatest challenge because it can hold you back mm. i think i learned a, a bit from getting past it and you know i had great mentors and other things that opened these my eyes to things but I think maybe that was it so conversely what do you consider to have been the greatest success of your career that's again a really difficult question but uh, but it would go to teaching at least at this stage in my career. I had lots of great mentors at RMIT and through practice, but I, um, uh, one of my important mentors was a man, uh, an architect, Peter Bickle, who was my supervisor for my thesis at RMIT. Mm-hmm. We worked together at ARM, and then we taught together for the first eight years of okay. uh, teaching at RMIT. I was a reluctant teacher. You know, he, yeah, he okay. sort of uh, dragged me along, made me do it, and uh, got me involved, and... And uh, I learned an, uh, an enormous amount through teaching. And as I, I think, as I mentioned before, I, I've taught for long enough now to just to, to sort of basically to recognise that that I have faith in people. Do you yeah. know what I mean? That yeah. you know, I've, I'm a lot more philosophical about teams and people now. And I think that that as a something to accomplish. Well, I'm not saying I'm a good teacher either, but just that going through that process has allowed me, I think, to be a better architect and um, hopefully a better leader in the studio and on the floor. And I'm really interested in what it is in teaching that you think has allowed you to become a better architect. It's about uh, empathy. 
So one of the things that for me became really important and you know, the, one of the great things about RMIT is the students get to select their tutor. So you yeah. start to project out ideas and they choose to. So I guess it slowly reinforces, um, there's a positive reinforcement yeah, to your is. philosophy yeah. to the student. But so I've always taught people how to, to achieve uh, their own personal ambition, you know, to recognize what it is that's driving them, to articulate that, you know, put words around it, make it specific. Uh, align students so that they can see which cultural subset of practice that they're in they're in so that they can hit that vein and they can engage with the right people to learn the most in the quickest yep. fashion because uh, so I think it's about you know seeing people's potential a bit like a coach in a sense you know what I mean and, and then tailoring under the auspice of one studio philosophy potentially but allowing them to grow as individuals so I've been very fortunate with a lot of my students over the years that I've been able to guide through and supervise for their thesis and so on. They've all, a lot of them have gone on and set up their own practices and other things and they're very successful architects. You know, I'm very interested in showing people how to see things differently so that they, they have agency, I guess. That's yep. part of my studio. And teaching people how to control the nature of practice so that it's not this mystical, complex, rule-based thing that, in fact, you can teach them how to act, I guess, yep. how to act on the city or act in, on their desires, I guess. Which I think underpins, uh, you've used the word ethical as an underpinning to practice mm. quite a number of times in this conversation. It's a word that's not often used in architectural language. Mm. Why do you think it's so important that there is an ethical underpinning to practice? I see the architect's, like it's, I guess the architect's role is different from an artist's role. I see it as, as a professional Yep. So to be a professional, you know, we need to act, you know, part of signing up to the act to register is that you have to act in in the interests of the city and the public and so on, above and beyond your own commercial yep. interests. Yep. And I think that the foundation for that is an ethical foundation as a philosophy. And I think we don't talk about it enough in practice. The reason why it's so important is that you can make ethics objective, I suppose. You know what I mean? Like you can explain yeah. an ethical situation or an ethical principle and multiple people can either agree with that ethic, you yeah. know, or not. But it's something that is that's tangible and understandable. If the foundation for our practice is ethical beyond aesthetic, then, then it's all about making the right decisions and doing the right thing each time. It makes it – I think it makes it easier to be tactical yeah. and strategic. It's easier to – so I find, for example, you know, again, engaging maybe with a city planner. If you if you if you're the architect, so if you if you if you dress yourself as the architect who's the the aesthetic genius and you're yep. designing this amazing new thing, and you know, please give me a permit. That's one level of engagement. But if you're engaging with that planner ethically and professionally, you know, then you uh, will engage with them on on the terms that they need you to, so that they can understand and, and judge your work fairly. Yes. As, an, as a, an example, I think the habitat building is an ethical approach to design. You know, there was no commercial or aesthetic imperative to do the sky gardens, you know, yep. but, but there was a simple uh, professional acknowledgement that an external balcony is, is simply a, you know, it's a waste. You know, yep. no one would ever use it. It would be horrible and so on. So the ethical thing to do was to find a, a better answer, which was harder for the practice, but led to other things, I guess. But also maybe in the end it allows you to be pluralist, multicultural. You know what I mean? It allows you to, to incorporate multiple different viewpoints or different types of people into one matrix potentially. Yeah, yeah I think there's potentially also an argument that that there's something slightly more objective 
Mm. And it, it's debatable. That's right. You, know, you can pin it up on a wall and we can all stand around and talk about it. That's right. Uh, and sometimes aesthetics is harder to do that with. That's right. And I think, you know, it goes back to um, Building 8, the reason why I studied architecture. You know, I think that, uh, that that particular piece of architecture is full of really interesting ethical yeah. principles. As an aesthetic issue, the, as an artist, I remember looking at that building and seeing all these early references to um, abstract expressionists and colour field yes. ideas. Yeah. And if you look back at all those artists, the Paul Klees and the... Kandinsky's and others, um, that Corrigan, it turns out he was, they were references, but it, they were looking for like a universal language. They were looking at colour yes. to see whether that could cross cultural, cultural boundaries, boundaries yeah. and, and other boundaries. And I think that those those kind of desires and those missions and those, you know, searching for those things are really, really important and really interesting, you know. Mm. And uh, so that project had, had the bench seat down the laneway that you could have a private conversation, yep. you know, so that really humble humanist nook but then it had all these other embedded ideas about culture communication hope and so yep. on that i think is really important that, that i think drives under well underpins people's interest in the profession i think it just gets confused you know along the way sometimes and the focus gets to be predominantly about one thing yes or two things but it could be all things yep um so five and five Uh-oh. Here we oh, go. i'll give you one word yep uh education Never stops. Success. Uh, hard to achieve, and maybe only someone else can apply it for you. Yeah. Tech. Opportunity. Uh, always, every day, every minute. Disruption. Might as well do it now. <laughs> Downtime. Haven't had any. No. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for coming in. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening in. We hope you enjoyed the last three episodes with Jonathan and Ben. And we'd like to thank Jonathan for sharing his story and Ben once again for his valuable time. We'll take a break for the next few weeks while we work on our future episodes. And we look forward to sharing more stories through the Business of Architecture and Design very soon. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review. Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us. <laughs>